everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Dr. Ruth Gotian, who is the Chief Learning Officer and an Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology. She is currently a contributor to Forbes and Psychology Today, and recently she published her book, The Success Factor, focused on how to optimize your own success. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ruth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I'm going to kick us off with something that I read from your bio. It stated that over your career, you have studied Nobel laureates, astronauts, CEOs, and Olympic champions in order to learn about their habits and practices. During the course of your study, what is the biggest change that you actually personally have ever made to organize your day as a result of learning how others organize and optimize their days? Yeah, this was a this was a key one. And look, I get the absolute privilege, and I won't lie, it's it's kind of fun that I get to interview these incredible people and really talk about their messy life. Not, I, you know, I tell them when I reach out to them, I don't want to talk about what I your success. I can Google that. I want to know what it took to get there, and that's where we have the most engaging conversations, the most fun conversations. And what I realized is that these people are never copying other people's habits, right? What works for you is not going to work for me. But what they have learned is really to leverage what works. So they figured out what their peak performance hours are, and they have learned to optimize those hours. So for example, I'm a morning person. I wake up super early in the morning naturally. That's when I am the most focused. That's when I can do my best work. So unless I can prevent it, um, you know, where I can prevent it, I usually try and have my morning hours to do my deep focus work. So a lot of people, they just plug in deep focus work during breaks in their day, remnants of their time. That's actually not beneficial. What you want to do is actually figure out your peak performance hours and leverage those hours for whatever you need to do. For me, that's writing and that's editing. I save the more passive tasks now to the afternoon when I'm a little bit more tired, a little bit more sluggish. Everything seems to take five times as long. That's when I'll generally have Zoom meetings. That's when I'll respond to emails. That's when I'll do those tasks that don't require that deep level of focus or that same heightened productivity. As soon as I realized that with the high achievers, I've adapted that same practice. That's actually how I got the book written. Because I work full time and have a family and there's a pandemic, writing a book is just on top of that. Usually people take months off, right? They'll take a sabbatical, they'll take time off in order to do it. I couldn't do that. So this book was actually written on weekends and not just on weekends, during the mornings of the weekends. That's when I do my best work. And I knew that's when I do my best work. So I would do the writing in the morning, I would do the editing in the morning. When I had to review it again, just read it out loud that I would do more in the, in the afternoons or the late evenings. But the deep writing was weekend mornings during the pandemic. And somehow it still became a bestseller, so. <laughs> well, I'll definitely agree with you. Some of what I was reading about you, I'm a little bit jealous of the people that you've gotten to talk to and the work that you've gotten to do. 
Is there a defining moment when you look back at your past as to the rationale for how you got to where you are or how you decided that this is, is what you want to spend your life focused on? Um, it, it really had to do with the people who I was working with. I ran what's called an MD-PhD program. So my students were getting two degrees simultaneously. The MD degree, they were going to be physicians, and the PhD degree, they were going to be scientists. And this is an eight-year program. Our tax dollars pay for it. It has a 3.5% acceptance rate. So you have a better chance of getting into Stanford than you have getting into this program. And nationally, we were having a problem where people who sacrificed so much and worked so hard to get into these programs and through these programs were leaving. They were leaving the profession. And we called it the leaky pipeline. And this is not too dissimilar from what we're facing now with the great resignation, reshuffle, whatever you want to call it. Now, nationally, everybody, and I mean, everybody was focused on those who were leaving. There were books written about it, articles written about it. Every annual meeting we had, our conferences, we talked about this. The National Institutes of Health created a task force to look into this problem and come up with solutions. That's how big of a problem it was. And I had been hearing and being part of these conversations for two decades and the needle hadn't moved. And I kept wondering, are we looking at the wrong problem? Is the problem not the people who are leaving? Is the problem that we are ignoring those who are staying? Mm. Now, what about those who are at the top who are doing such incredible work? Can we get more of those people? And wouldn't their high productivity more than make up for anybody who's leaving. So I was fascinated with that topic. And at the age of 43, while working full-time and raising my family, I said, we're going to add one more thing. And I went and I pursued my doctorate. And my first group of high achievers who I studied were physician scientists, the best of the best physician scientists. Nobel Prize winners and NIH Institute directors and people who got the biggest scientific prizes, the Breakthrough Prize, the Lasker Award. And when I noticed they all had four elements of success, I then wondered if other high achievers in other professions and other industries would also have those same four. So I started studying astronauts and Olympians and CEOs and senior political figures. And then I wrote the book, The Success Factor. <laughs> And I think it's inevitable to go into any piece of work and have some preconceived notions. Did you have a preconceived notion that was disproven by talking to all these, these people and it's completely reframed the way that you've thought about success? Well, I originally thought that success was for you know other people, hmm. right? You had to be born into the right family. You had to have the right pedigree. You had to have somebody who was always opening doors for you, always looking out for you. But the more I got to know these people, and when you do qualitative research, so I'm a social scientist, this was done on, re this was research, this was interviews and transcriptions and coding of the interviews. And I quickly realized that they are regular people. Now, sure, some of them went to the best schools, but some of them had really, really tough backgrounds. Hmm. And I realized it was not the background because you could have every privilege in the world. But if you don't leverage it, it's as if you have none. So I quickly realized that success is not for other people. Success is for those who want it. 
And I don't believe that people want to wake up in the morning aiming to be average. I think people want to be successful. We just didn't have a game plan before. And now I've created that blueprint based on all of these interviews and all of this research. And now I go all over the world talking about it and teaching it. We talked a little bit about the power of structuring your day and the deep work and where to focus it. Is there another key theme from the book that somebody that wants to get started on this process um, should really focus on right off the bat? Where are most of us making some of those, I don't call them mistakes, but things that can be corrected to make a big difference? Well, there's four elements and you have to do all four together. But if you were going to start with one, I would say, go find what it is that you are intrinsically motivated to do. Hmm. I'll tell you why this is so important. When I was in graduate school, I went to Columbia for my doctorate. And um, when, you, when you're getting your doctorate, there's a lot of classes you need to take. It's 90 credits, right? A lot of classes. Then you have a dissertation exam, uh, a qualifying exam, a qualifying paper, and then you put together your research proposal, do your, defend that, do your research, and then defend your dissertation. Now, at that middle point before you write your research proposal, there's one last class that you take. And the professor, she went around the room, Dr. Marie Volpe, and she asked everyone, why are you doing this? Why, why are you putting yourself through this? Why are you getting a doctorate? It's lonely, it's isolating, you're facing failure and rejection and challenges every single day. No one understands what you're doing or why you're doing it. You can't really have conversations with people about why are you doing it? And I remember sitting there listening as every person gave their response. This one wanted it for the promotion. This one wanted it for the recognition. This one thought that they had this job that they have their eye on and they thought this degree would help them get it. This one had this burning question inside of them that they wanted answered. This one saw a problem in society and they really wanted to have a way to figure it out or at least make a major dent in it. And I sat there in the class and I went up to the professor afterwards coincidentally turned out to be my dissertation advisor later. And I said, Dr. Volpe, those people, I said, those three, they're not gonna finish. And it turned out I had a 100% accuracy rate. What I meant was the people who were doing it for recognitions, promotions, some future job down the line, those were people who were motivated by extrinsic motivation, right? The diplomas, the awards, the bonuses, that's when other people are judging you. Now, I don't know about you, but when other people judge me, that is hard to maintain. It is hard to sustain that fire. So, but the people who were doing it because there was a question of why that they wanted answered, there was a problem in society that they wanted to try to fix. Mm. That was an intrinsic motivation. When that fire within your belly when that's burning, there is nothing anyone or anything can do to extinguish it. Hmm. And when you tap into your intrinsic motivation, you're actually happier. You have less burnout. Um, there's a study out of the Mayo Clinic that shows you only need to spend 20% of your time working on these passion projects in order to experience less burnout. And that really rolls into that second element, which is the work ethic, the perseverance. But more importantly, 
It's how you view challenges. People who are intrinsically motivated, when there's a challenge, they never, ever question if they'll be able to overcome it. They know they will. Instead, they focus on how. What is the strategy I haven't thought of yet? What do I still need to do? Because the high achievers, they fear not trying more than they fear failing. Hmm. And that's what differentiates them. One thing that fascinates me about your work is so much of it is driven by talking to and learning from these unbelievably successful, intelligent, very busy individuals. How did you break free and get those conversations? What was your process to actually set up the conversations? How did you prepare for them? How did you make sure it was a valuable use of their time? So how did you break free to get the conversations? And then how did you make sure to maximize your time once you got them? So how did I access these people? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, a question I get often because this is the only study I know of in the world that studied this cross-section of the population, right? Usually people do only athletes or only astronauts. Um, so because of where I worked, I knew Nobel Prize winners. So that that was my start there. And at one conference, I met um, an astronaut and approached him after his panel presentation. Mm. Um, I was actually at a dinner and somebody was dating a former Olympian. So I, I was speaking to him. So I had one of each and over time, people like to work with those who they know, like, and trust. Hmm. And I was able to show that what I was doing was actually for good, right? I'm not writing for the tabloids. I'm here to do real research. And I said to them, I don't want to talk about what I can Google about you. That's not interesting. I want to talk about what it took to get there. And nobody asked them about that. Hmm. People are just fangirling and fanboying over the success that was of less interest to me. So what happened was I got to know, like, and trust these people. And I think they got to know, like, and trust me. And as a result, they kept referring me to the people who they knew. So one Olympian was referring me to another Olympian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now because of the work I do and because I write about it so much and I write Forbes articles about it and Psych Today articles about it, um, People are constantly, when they meet someone who they know fits the criteria, they, they make the introduction. And getting them to open up, as I said, it's just when people know, like, and trust you, having that referral helped, mm -hmm. showing them other examples of what I'm doing with this kind of information and how I'm using it for good. Because at the end of the day, you know, what's interesting with the Olympians, they never have their medals on display, ever, ever. Apollo Ono has it in a brown paper bag in his sock drawer. Most of them have it in the nightstand, the sock drawer, the safe. They only take it out to inspire other people. Mm. And when they realize that what I'm trying to do is inspire other people, that's just like what their medal is for. And then they understood and then they were able to open up and really share their story. And it's definitely inspiring. You've had the, all of these incredible opportunities. What would you tell your younger self as you were starting out in your journey from the lessons that you've taken from others? We obviously, we all evolve, we all change over time. What would a piece of advice that you would give to your, your younger self? And then maybe I'll extrapolate it out to younger leaders that are earlier in their career. Look, I say this to my three kids all the time and I'm still doing this. Surround yourself with interesting people. 
you never know what you're going to learn from people. You never know. So stop surrounding yourself with people who do what you do and people who look like you look because you're going to hear the same thing over and over and over again. If you want to learn something new, surround yourself with people who are vastly different than you. And the way to have innovation is to take two different ideas and merge them together in a new way. That's how you get an innovation. But how are you going to get these new ideas if you're surrounding yourself with the same people and same ideas all the time? If you want to be innovative, bring someone in, bring someone from another industry, start to talk to them. And that's how you'll learn the most. A theme that has come up so frequently on this show, and I, I hear in a lot of your answers is curiosity. You know, you were curious about what was going on. It led you down this path. What are you curious about right now? It can be in your space, outside your space. I don't need you to say what your next book is going to be, if there's going to be another one, but where, do, what does curiosity look like for you right now? So, you know, it's interesting. I, I got to spend the weekend with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, who's the number one executive coach in the world. He's been ranked that year after year after year. And on the ride back to the hotel, we were in the car together. And I have known Marshall for a long time. I know everything behind the scenes. I didn't really get to see him lead workshops the way I did that weekend. And the whole way back in the car, I was peppering him with questions. Why did you do that? Why do you see people this way? Why did you do this? I mean, the, I was like a two-year-old asking why all the time, because I wanted to understand his process, not just the output, not just what happened, but why he did that. When did he realize that was the right thing to do? Who did he talk to to make it happen? Why did he take control the way he did? I wanted to understand that process and understanding that, understanding the why that to me is the ultimate curiosity. And that's what I'm always curious. Why things, why people do things the way they do, which leads to success. Because what he did was magical. That was successful. And I have, I have led hundreds, if not thousands of workshops, but this was, this was next level. And I, I wanted to learn. I want to learn from the best. That's curiosity. Right. Wanting to learn from the best is such a wonderful spot to shift us to our final rapid fire questions. And I get to ask all of our guests this. So if you're ready, I'll hit you with question number one, which is if you could describe your leadership style in just one word, what would that word be? Inspiring. And the final rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Oh, okay. So this piece of advice was from my mentor, Dr. Bert Shapiro. And it was reiterated to me a few years later by Dr. Tony Fauci, who's mm -hmm. also featured in the book. And they both said to me separately, do something important, not just interesting. That is a wonderful spot to close us out. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Thank you. So the book is called The Success Factor. Wherever you love getting books and wherever you are in the world, you could just go on my website, Ruth Gotian, R-U-T-H-G-O-T-I-A-N.com, ruthgotian.com slash book. You'll see the books there. You'll see worksheets you can download, book locations all over the world. And social media is just my name, Ruth Gotian. 
Perfect. Well, thank you for all of the great insight. And as always, thanks to our wonderful listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Ability Sims, and you can find our organization at ability.com. That is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E. I want to thank Ruth again for joining us on this episode. And of course, I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. This podcast is produced by Ability, a leading provider of award-winning leadership development. You can find us at www.ability.com or by searching for Ability Leadership Development. Make sure to also check out our 12-week fully virtual mini MBA, the Invited MBA, a nights and weekends program that features experiential learning, mentorship, case studies, and networking. Find more information at www.invitedmba.com. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you get our next episode. We want to thank you all for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.